It's going to be another phrase that I've sort of coined, safe spaces and octagons. People are going to become more scared and go deeper into a safe space. Others are going to long more for freedom and combat and excitement and danger. They're going to go toward the octagons. Benjamin Franklin said that those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. If the last several years have demonstrated anything, it's that too many young Americans value safety above all. Consider a 2021 YouGov poll, which found that Americans aged 18 to 24 had the highest levels of nervousness about interacting with other people post-pandemic. 50% said they were nervous about it. That compares to just 31% for people over the age of 55. Think about that. The group with near zero risk was dramatically more fearful than the group at actual risk. From terrorism to climate change to stranger danger, our culture of fear has made our kids a nervous wreck and threatened American freedom for all of us. It's also wreaked havoc with our comedy in the process. Well, today's guest, fellow MTV alum Adam Carolla, isn't afraid to tell his kids or the rest of us to toughen up, get over it, and move forward. He's a comedian, podcast host, author of six books, and star of the recent documentary, No Safe Spaces. In his latest book, Everything Reminds Me of Something, he answers real questions from his fans and famous friends with an unapologetic sense of humor. Adam bootstraps his way to success from construction work to coaching boxers before breaking into the entertainment industry and setting the world record for the most downloaded podcast. Adam didn't take no for an answer and didn't let fear stop him from achieving his goals. I'm not so sure that the stuff you and I think that everyone longs for, longs for anymore. I can tell you that these people don't, in fact, want freedom. It's like the opposite of whatever the founding fathers were trying to create. But it's insane, it's bizarre, it's unthinkable. Everyone I speak to in the same general age vicinity is just dumbfounded by it. We wanted freedom, and I realized I, my kids don't want freedom. They like it in the house. I sat in a sweat box in North Hollywood that was, you know, 875 square feet with no air conditioning. And I was like, I gotta get out of here. Adam is a great example of how hard work, determination, and a no-nonsense approach to life can pay off. All right, Adam, thank you for being on Dad Saves America. My pleasure. <laughs> so uh, it's hard for me to know where to start because so much of the stuff you've written and talk about all the time is like the substrate of what we do or what I care about with the show, which is like how to be a good dad and a good man, uh, what's happening with our kids, what's going wrong with our kids. And I guess I wanna start with a quote. In uh, Daddy Stop Talking, you start with nowadays, telling your wife, I have to work, gets you a disappointing sigh. <laughs> I've, I've had this disappointing sigh happen. Uh, this is the worst period in history to be a dad. It used to be that you worked and provided and that was enough. Do you think it's the worst time in history to be a dad? I mean, there are certain <laughs> plagues, you know, during <laughs> in some ages, some darkish ages and things like that. My, my general synopsis, at least as I figured out with my own family, is money <clears throat> became invisible. And when money became invisible, then whoever was providing the money sort of became invisible as well. So it was funny because I was just watching football with a bunch of dudes who were lamenting the same thing. And I was thinking back, you know, 
when I was a kid, if I asked my dad for money, you know, first it was, you know, the whole grieving process of him, like, oh, God, dear Lord, no, what, what, you know? And then it was like, like this, uh, you know, and he'd pull like a dollar out and be like, now, listen, I need change. You know, what, you know, the snow cones, 35 cents. This is, this is a dollar, you know what I mean? So, you, you know, and, and there was this sort of transactional thing where it's like a thank you, thank you, kind sir. And I realized like, my daughter, my son, everything's just sort of Apple Pay and it's on their phones. Yeah. So whatever's showing up to the house in terms of the Grubhub order, there's no direct correlation to me. You know, why would there be? As money kind of becomes invisible, then the work that created the money sort of becomes invisible as well. And then also work isn't, work as in working at a logging camp or working at the Dearborn factory of Ford or whatever, where you'd come home and you had soot. There was evidence of the work. There's <laughs> evidence of the work. Like, you know, what do you do all day? What do I do all day? Just sit around, bore people, you know, stupid jokes or whatever. Like nobody cares. So the money's kind of invisible. The work is sort of invisible. And so then where would that, moment come where the provider of the money, you know, payday would be Friday and you'd come home and your back would be sore and somebody would yell, uh, you know, dinner's almost ready in, in a panic, you know, because you weren't in a good mood because you had a tough week, you know, that, that doesn't really exist anymore. So I think, I think the appreciation is commensurate with the actual physical money and the physical work. And since that's sort of gone, then we're in some sort of nebulous zone of, I don't know what you do. I don't know, do you work? Do you call it work? Would you say it is? I'm not spending your money. I just got this phone and the phone gets the Chipotle yeah. to the house. So I should thank whoever provided the phone. You know, it's, right. it's, it's all kind of invisible now. It's funny because I've done things that I know I probably shouldn't do. Like I got my my son Apple Pay and the little card because he, now that he drives, he needs to be able to pay for gas. And I feel the same way. It's like, I should probably be giving him cash. Yeah. But then that's kind of a pain in the ass and I don't carry that much cash. So it's like, is there an escape from the invisibility, do you think? Do you do anything to like escape it? No, I do nothing. <laughs> so, you know, don't listen to me. But I mean, obviously, the more regimented you can be and the more tactile you can be, then it would be better. It'd be better if your kids, you know, did chores and mowed lawns and then got $20 and then could see that $20 was going into the fuel for the car, you know, or the Chipotle bag or whatever it is. I mean, it'd be nice if there was some sort of because at a certain point, I think you just sort of become like the government. There's an apathy yeah. that is built into that non-tactile, the opposite of the, you know, bucket of change that your dad had on his nightstand or something that you could get a few nickels from. You've always been like a big advocate for like physical work and you worked a lot. So like, where did that start for you? I was always kind of tactile. I like 
wrestling and football and, you know, jumping off a roof into a swimming pool and stuff. So it's like, for me, life was pretty physical. I wasn't a good student. I wasn't good, you know, at reading and writing and stuff, but I was, I was like good at wrestling and jumping my BMX bike and stuff like that. So I, yeah. I guess I just kind of took that sort of physical world into the real world, you know, after high school, when I just started working on construction sites and stuff like that. And so my world was very mechanical and very physical and not very cerebral. And- Was that your first job on a, like on a construction site? Like what was your very first job? Well, McDonald's was probably like my first sort of real punch the time clock kind of kind of job, you know? Then after that, I worked at a liquor store. I was like doing deliveries at a liquor store but it was really always about moving boxes somewhere. <laughs> you know, the liquor store was unloading yeah, the yeah. station wagon with all the cases of Smirnoff and it's put in the storeroom and then picking up another 10 cases. So a lot of like moving, moving stuff, you know, when I got onto a construction site, it was just pure labor at that point, just digging ditches, cleaning up garbage, you know, just kind of demo, you know, just very, mechanical, tactile stuff. What was your feeling about work when you were doing that? I didn't like digging, like for an entire day. We worked a lot of 10 hour days on this job and the job was to dig footings, you know, or a case on hole or something like that for the day, you know, yeah. for the entire day. So, you know, I don't think most people really know what it's like to dig for 10 hours. They they kind of have the, uh, you know, I put a dwarf lemon tree in my backyard kind of digging, but they don't yeah. really know it's like to just strictly dig ditches for hours, you know, the entire day and just come back the next day and just pick up the shovel and just start keep, keep digging going. again. But I uh, unfortunately had a lot of that at the beginning and uh, I didn't like it. And it was, you know, very repetitive and monotonous and kind of mind numbing. And I didn't have earbuds and I wasn't listening to a podcast. You know, <laughs> I was just sort of go outside and stand in the sun and, and dig. And so, no, I, I didn't like that at all. It's funny, this idea uh, that you can now be entertained at any time. I feel like our kids don't even know what it's like to be bored. And like mm -hmm. most of childhood was boring <laughs> yeah i mean well i think most of child my childhood at least was an attempt to escape boredom so you would be bored and then you'd go man i'm bored like how do i escape this and then you would try to come up with these sort of you know like in the great escape when steve mcqueen would go into the cooler he'd like bring his baseball mitt and he just got ta 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 to, to, to throw the ball, you know, it's like, yeah. and you understood like, well, that's not something you would do if you could play in a softball game, but if you were in a cooler in solitary, then that would be a way to occupy yourself. I, I was always about to be bored, but I would figure out something physically to go do to, you know, climbing trees, you know what I mean? Like yeah. climbed a lot of trees just for the sake of boredom. One of the things, um, that I think is so interesting is this distinction between like, what does mom bring to the pay table versus dad? Mm -hmm. And I know you've written about this a bunch. Who's gonna get more worried about you climbing the tree? Feels like one of these litmus tests for this. Cause my son loves climbing trees. I mean, he's oh, 17 now, so he doesn't climb them quite as much as he used to. But 
How do you think about like the difference between mom and dad? Because I feel like typically mom's the one to be worried about you falling out and breaking your neck and dad is the one to be like, well, how high can you go? Yeah, I think both parents now are worried that would be worried that the kid is climbing a tree. I think that's what we've kind of morphed into as a society. But yeah, it was that mom traditionally was worried and that's dad wanted the kid to have some bumps and bruises and understand how the real world work. And also whatever it is <clears throat> you got in terms of your judgment and your relationship with danger. So, you know, a lot of that, you know, a lot of what we talk about or like what someone like Jordan Peterson says, well, you have little boys need to roughhouse because they need to sort of regulate how hard. And, and I remember yeah. doing a lot of really ambitious wrestling with my friends, but you, and really trying to kick the crap out of them, but also you kind of had to know where to stop. You know, at yeah. a certain point, you cut the air off to their brain or you <laughs> hit them with a closed fist or something like, it's really rambunctious, really spirited, but also you had to kind of learn to modulate, you know, and now we've just said no wrestling, you know, but that doesn't really teach people where the line is. I feel like one of the things, all, everybody's got all these allergies and all these autoimmune problems now, and that one of the things that's happened is, like our immune system evolved in a much dirtier world, so our immune systems are used to having to do a lot more, and so they've just turned on us. I kind of feel like that's what's happened to all of society. Like, our society has become a little bit like an autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm, I completely agree. Yeah, you need to work it out your immune system, you know, wiping everything down with Purell and washing your hands 10 times a day and stuff doesn't really give your immune system a chance to work out. What do you do with your kids to try to not do the things that you're worried about with them? You look out, you know. It's pretty limited, I must say. I've essentially given up on society for the <laughs> most part. I sort of know what works and what doesn't work. You know, I'm considered just an old crazy man, you know, but I've worked it out. I understand, you know, what works. I had a deal going with my son for about 10 minutes, which was I'm up in the foothills and it gets really cold at night and the pool is not heated and it gets freezing cold. I go in the freezing cold pool every single morning. But I said to my son, I'll make a deal with you. I said, you don't have to go into the freezing pool every day, but on days where I drive in to Hollywood and do stand-up for free, on those days you need to go in the pool because I'm doing something to, to try to better myself without, and it takes a while from where I live to get into the comedy store, and I'm sacrificing that to try to improve, and on those days you need to jump in the freezing pool. <laughs> <laughs> the connection between your making things better and his jumping in the, does he, did he just set, go along with this, he did this it. plan? He did it a few times and then the whole the family turned against me. <laughs> I, I, I was basically saying, you need to create some adversity here. Your life is too easy and you're too laid back. I didn't have to create any adversity when I was growing up. There was just, it was just kind of baked into the cake, you know. Tell me more about that. My family was pretty poor and, you know, they didn't have money. They didn't have time for their kids. They didn't really 
they're kind of, you know, low grade depression and just sort of poverty. And so I was like forced to go and play sports and kind of engage in the world and do it outside of the house and sort of find my way and, and, and deal with whatever life threw at you sort of independently. I didn't have anyone in my family, you know, sort of bailing me out with money or having my dad step up on my behalf or whatever. I was just kind of on my own. And so I kind of learned to navigate, you know, and, you know, I don't really wish it upon anybody, but there's good lessons yeah. to be learned from it. And I realized that my kids were growing up in just t too much opulence, like just whatever, whenever they got it, they wanted something, they'd order it, you know, they were in the mood for this kind of food, they'd get that kind of food. And it was just a general overindulgence, you know, that I would have indulged in too, if had I had the opportunity, but I, I didn't have the opportunity. So I was just kind of forced to deal with, I guess, adversity. And then I got some muscles from it and I learned some lessons from it. And I took some bumps and bruises, you know, from it, but I kind of took it and then, uh, you know, I just sort of applied it to life. And, you know, my kids aren't really going to get those life lessons and the, the, all the kinds of stuff that kind of forges you into a, to an adult. It's really hard to try to recreate a thing that came along kind of for free, right? It's like, that's something, I, I think about that a lot. It's like, I didn't have adversity insofar as like my dad and mom were there and were pretty great, but my dad, dad did have me help on all of the home construction projects all the time. So I mm -hmm. have a lot of, I spent, I logged a lot of time crawling under the crawl space or holding the flashlight while he fixed this or that. I kind of picked that up and I, I feel like I haven't done as good a job as I should of even having my son do those things. For you at this stage of society, it, it would become a sort of a full-time job. But back then it wasn't really a job. It was just kind of life. Like, right. so if you said, well, you wanted your kid's diet to be X, Y, or Z. Well, if you just lived in a house where there wasn't any cocoa puffs and there wasn't <laughs> any money, then that's a pretty easy job. You don't really, it's not even a job. It's just that this is it. We got nothing. My parents didn't have to worry about how much fast food I ate because I didn't have any money and they didn't have any money and they didn't buy any fast food. So when I was 11, how much fast food was I going to eat, you know? Right. And now there's a place and it's on every corner and it's open 24 hours and the kids got Apple Pay. Now it becomes a job. Now you have to like regulate this and lay down rules and parameters. And how much of your upbringing do you feel like, you know, translates into your comedy? I mean, obviously you, you draw on it a lot, but was there like, is there temperamental things that it's like, man, I wouldn't be the comedian today if I didn't have kind of a, a challenging childhood? It's a difficult question to ask because it's a little impossible. Sure. Because I, I know plenty of funny guys who had pretty good childhoods and I know plenty of funny guys who didn't, you know, and so it'd be hard to draw a straight line to a conclusion if you're just sort of looking at data. You yeah. know, I was kind of always funny, just like some people are, you know, good, have a singing voice or play an instrument or, you know, whatever that good with animals or something like that. I, I always had a kind of good sense of humor. I don't know that it was spawned by my family. I know you have a lot of cars and you love cars. Did you have a first encounter with cars where that clicked in? Like, was it Matchbox or was it, when did that first happen? 
Yeah, I, I, I always liked like a Tonka truck or a Matchbox car, and I used to really just sort of stare at them and kind of fantasize about having that car one day. And What was your first car? Well, the, I got a motorcycle, a Honda 404, just to get around. I guess I was riding it for maybe a, a couple of years, and, I, and then I got a job on a construction site. After working there and kind of like riding my motorcycle in for several months, I guess, my, my foreman told me to give me another dollar an hour if I bought a truck. You know, I, I was probably making seven bucks an hour, maybe eight bucks an hour, and I was gonna get another buck an hour, and that sounded pretty good to me. Yeah. And I could do some side jobs on the weekends and stuff. I had a pickup truck, so I just went and bought a Mazda, kind of beater, kind of like 1978, you know, long bed, you know, beater. I wanna read a quote from, you know, everything reminds me of something that really was it's so spot on. He said, when I was young, if I met someone who was 17 and a half and didn't have their driver's license, I would call them a loser and make fun of them. My buddy Ray didn't have his license until he was 18. That was two long years of verbal abuse by me, and which was repaid by physical abuse. Kids nowadays don't care about getting their license. And I encountered this. I somewhat had to force my son to get his license. Yeah, I'm in the midst of forcing my son to get his license. So tell me about, tell me about what you're going through right now, because... I, my son was actually the first of his, of his friends to get his license, and I can't understand how you could not be banging down the door at the DMV the day you turn 15 or when you can get your lear learner's permit. But this is like happening across the country. Well, it, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon that illustrates whatever the divide is between old and new, which is every adult father with a teenage son or daughter I've spoken to about this, and moms, of our age are befuddled. Like they're fit to be tied. They're like, I, what is, what is this? I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. They don't have an explanation. They, they can't even, they can barely articulate it. They're just like, I, what? and then, you know, when I was 50, on my 16th birthday, I went to the DMV, you know, I couldn't yeah. believe, you know, and freedom. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane how casual they are. If, if anything, I mean, this is an ongoing bone of contention. I literally said to my son yesterday, who's 16 and coming up on a half now, who I'm like, I'm, I'm getting him the stupid books to study and signing him up for online you know, classes. And he's reluctantly sort of going along with it. And I was gonna go watch a, uh, I watch football game with the guys on the Sundays and whatever. Yeah. Uh, two miles from the house. My son and I usually just ride electric bikes over and watch, watch the game. But it was raining a little bit. It was like, it was drizzling, but was it raining? But I don't know, it was kind of cold. And I said, uh, Sonny, uh, which is his name, I said, uh, do you think I'm that old? Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> I said, look, uh, it's kind of raining outside. I, I don't know if the bikes are gonna cut it today. We're gonna drive my SUV over there and I may have a couple of beers. So if I'm gonna have a couple of beers, then you drive us home. And he's like, ugh, you know? And I'm like, it's two miles away. We'll take side streets, you know? And he's like, I don't, I don't know. And I was like, all right, let's just ride the electric bikes. Then obviously <laughs> you gave up. I gave up. I was like, I'm fine, we'll take the electric. 
But it's insane. It's bizarre. It's unthinkable. But I, I think everyone I speak to who is a person who is in the same general age vicinity and has children in, in that, that age group is just dumbfounded by it. But they always say, you know, oh, we wanted freedom. We wanted freedom. Freedom. We'll get out of the house. You know, go where we want to go. And I realized my kids don't want freedom. They like it in the house. You know what I mean? They got what they need in that house. They're enjoying themselves in that house. They have no reason to leave that house. If they need some fast food, someone will bring it to the house. There's a movie theater in that house. Like all the stuff, you know, I sat in a sweat box in North Hollywood that was 875 square feet with no air conditioning and no flat panel TVs and like a depressed mom and a decrepit house. And I was like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out, you know, but, yeah. but just driving in and of itself was entertainment compared to that. If I'd had a 75 inch TV and 500 channels and some Grubhub coming my way, I don't know that I would have been in such a rush to leave. I feel like cars are such a part of like American culture and it's like, yeah. it's a pin being pulled out. It's like if the American culture is like a game of Jenga, this is a really low pivotal piece to pull on, don't you think? I mean, obviously you love cars, but it's like, what is this, where do we head culturally if kids don't have the love affair with cars that everyone's had since the Model T? Yeah, it is a kind of end of an era for sure. And it's not just you and I who drew a short straw with teenagers who don't care about driving. It is ubiquitous now. Obviously it's a phenomenon, it's not a coincidence. And my nephews were the same way. My nephews are a little bit older, but I remember when one of them stayed with me several years ago and he was like 17 and I was like, do you have your drive? No, you don't want your drive? I, said, I don't not want it, you know what I mean? And it's like- I, I don't not want it. I was like, well, why don't I teach you how to drive in this loaded Audi A7? He's like, eh, you know, I'm good. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it kind of, speaks to the end of an era. It also might be an eerie harbinger when it comes to freedom, because it's like, I was talking to Dr. Drew about this earlier today. You know, I said, you know, what's going on in this country? Like half the people just want more government, bigger, bigger, and like more government. And he said, yeah, it, it basically flies in the face of America and freedom and like what, what this country's about, you know? Yeah. Why do so many people want bigger, more, you know, expansive rules, you know, look no further than living in California through COVID, you know, like, why is this enticing? This is America, we're Americans. And I, I said to him, yeah, but we're old. If you're 28, I don't know if, I, you're saying everyone wants to be free. I'm saying, I don't know if these people want that anymore. I mean, I, they don't want their driver's license. And when it comes to COVID, you know, shut the schools, shut the workplaces. I'm going to sit home, bring me food. Like, I am not so sure that the stuff you and I think that everyone longs for, longs for anymore. I, I don't know. The driver's license is kind of a metaphor for freedom. And if this is the results, I can tell you that these people don't, in fact, want freedom. And I don't think it's just as it pertains to driver's licenses. I, 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 you know, to me, 
huge government's disgusting. It's a waste. I, I want them out of my life. I can't stand it. It's like the, the opposite of whatever the founding fathers were trying to create. I don't think they think that way about driver's licenses or the government. I think they want it less freedom. I feel like it's super connected to what we were talking about before, being in the physical world. It's like there's lessons you learn about reality when you have to get a door frame to be plumb. That We would say door chain. <laughs> I don't know how much your dad actually taught you. <laughs> yeah, no. Door frame, you guys hear that? Jam, door jam. You're right, you're right. Casing, not molding, casing. I was. I'm. I'm better with the uh, with the low voltage electronics. I can. Do, I can install the low voltage in your house. Oh, that's cute. That's sweet. <laughs> and I'll dig ditches for you. No problem. Oh, okay. Yeah. You bury the low vol. Yeah. Uh, exterior <laughs> wiring. Yeah. You know that process teaches you things that are not so obvious to me. I think about like the world is not abstract. But then our kids live in Minecraft land, which is yeah. all abstract. Yeah. You know, how do you think about, like, because the, these things are really connected. Like, they're both not driving. They probably don't think they're not being free because they're free to, they, they have, like, this digital world that they go on mm -hmm. that feels, like, infinite. Yeah. And it's like, do their brains even know the difference? It's hard to say. It's, 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 it's like a brave new, I don't know if it's brave new world. It's a new world. Yeah, it's not that brave. <laughs> it's Although we keep calling everyone brave and a hero and all that kind of stuff, which is interesting how we're laying that stuff on so thick now. But yeah, so what it is is when you're doing a door frame, there is a door frame. Yeah. It's not the jam, but it's the, you would frame out a door. Right. And you would put your header. And, you know, a door frame would be you've got a, 36 inch door and then the jam is three quarter and three quarter on each side so now you're 37 and a half and then you build in another half inch to shim it up and make it plumb and everything and so you'd rough it out at like 38 inches you know and if you put the header up and the header was two inches too low when you want to put the door jam in with the door you screwed up like it's not going to work and there wouldn't be you couldn't explain to someone that you felt like it should have worked or like in your heart it does work <laughs> or you'd like to live in a world where you could imagine it did work or it just worked or it didn't work. It was, it was very tactile, very mechanical and whatever. And so when you grow up in that world, there is no arguing away you putting the header in at the wrong height. But in the sort of digital whatever world we're living in, it's a lot of people, like a lot of people starting sentences with, I feel like I'm, you know, and I'm gonna, and, and I know in my heart, you know, and it's like, there's a lot of that. And so it's kind of left the door, pardon the pun, open for a lot of feelings talk that is very inaccurate and it doesn't really make sense, but we're hustling down that road as a society as more people get off the farm and into the air conditioning and into the cubicles, then we've opened up this sort of alternate world where you, you, you're not right, but your feelings make you feel like you're right. And I can't tell you you're wrong if you feel this way. And it's really pathetic, really. It's kind of sad. And, it, and it's more, more the people that should be the sort of custodians or guardians of 
sanity or truth are the ones that need to pipe up and start telling people they're wrong and it doesn't it's not working and they're they're being shunned and outcast and it's really a weird kind of dangerous place we're in getting away from the tangible mechanical is is not going to have a happy ending for most Americans even though that's their plan there's like this elite divide too that's on top of it all where Everybody's told they have to go to college. Every, you know, the, n none of the things you're talking about really are, seem to be valued culturally. Like the idea that you can go and make a six figure living as a con contractor is not a thing that's on the table. I remember while we were building our house, our builder said, you know, he, they've more than once, they've been on the job with a client and the, and the person says to their kid, you need to see how hard these guys are working. You need to study or you're gonna end up swinging a hammer for the rest of your life. Right. And it's like, I could, he's told this to me and I'm seeing red. I'm like, first of all, like, this person's building your family's home and you're basically throwing them in the trash right. in front of your kid to make some horrendous lesson. How do you communicate this with your kids? Like, is this a conversation you have with them about like get your no. head screwed on straight. <laughs> I mean, I you know, look, I I tell them you're gonna have to learn to work at a certain point. Like I, you know, you can get all the education you want, you can take all the programs you want, do all the extracurricular activities you want, but you, you better learn to work. And I can't do that for you. You know what I mean? Like you're gonna, you're gonna have to learn how to work. It's a kind of a dying art, and everyone is scared of it, and they're trying to avoid it. And it's that yeah, you're gonna end up. You don't study, you're gonna end up here, working. you know, working. And it's like, I've never saw, first off, the, those people who do that work are almost always happier than the people that are in the air conditioning who went to college. I have found they have just a better relationship with reality and, and life because it's something that they have to engage in on a daily basis, you know? you. Like when COVID rolled around, it's like the more educated you were, the more scared you were, and the more yeah. you work, the less scared you were because they have a relationship with danger, the folks that do the work, because every time you pick up a tool, it's an opportunity for that tool to hurt you in some way. And there's a lot of measuring, not measure twice, cut once, but like a sort of, I'm pushing this thing through this table saw, you know? And when you do that for a living, it's a, it's a constant dance with things that where you could lose a finger or the piece of oak could jam up at the table saw and shoot you, you know, on the bridge of the nose or whatever. Like you're cutting something on a table saw. If the fence is this far away from the blade, then you just push it through, you know? But sometimes the fence is, four inches from the blade. And you might put your thumb and push it through. And then sometimes it's two inches from the blade and then you should get a push stick and push that through. You shouldn't yeah. put your hand in there, which I've definitely done, but I'm just saying like, <laughs> you gotta kind of measure it out, you know? And, yeah. and when you fire up a table saw and you got a piece of hardwood like oak and you're just trying to ram it through, it's gonna bind quick. And there's going to be issues, you know, you have to kind of really kind of feel it, you know, like you can feel when it's not wanting to cut as mm -hmm. fast as you're wanting to push. And 
those guys are constantly engaged in that. So they're always calibrated. So like when something like COVID comes along, I think they look around and they see who's dying and who's not dying and their buddy who got it and how he's, he was out for four days or whatever, but he's fine now. And they go, I've assessed risk because that's what I do all day. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, every time you climb up a ladder, every time you put together some scaffolding to work off the second story, whatever, it's like, it's all risk, assess, risk, assess. Also with some like efficiency built in, like, well, I, yeah, I'd like to make scaffolding safe, but I don't have six hours to do it. I, I could, right. I'm not gonna put a net underneath me, I'm, but but I'm not gonna not secure it to the building. You know, like these, these things. And the people who went to college, especially the ones who worked in entertainment, especially the ones who like sat around the most and the most air conditioning were just bad crazy when it came to COVID. They had no asset. They were unable to regulate. They couldn't regulate. They yeah. couldn't understand who it affects, who it doesn't affect. They, they couldn't assess the risk of mask outdoors or shutting down beaches or something. Like they weren't- Arresting people surfing. Yeah, in vain <laughs> for paddle boarding. They weren't, they weren't calibrated. They were like poor, educated souls who didn't know. It's, it's like they didn't know the difference between a lizard and an alligator. You know, they were just, they just ran into the house screaming. Well, they're the same you know? size when you see them in pictures. So. Right, <laughs> yeah. The more we move away from the sort of rural places and the jobs that involved your hands and grease under your fingernails and, and things like that, the more sort of bizarrely superstitious, gypsy, sort of weird, like, I think with my heart, you know, like it, 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 it's screwing <laughs> like up a lot it's of people. Gypsy. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of crazy yeah. gypsy people like who are, and, you know, producers and <laughs> directors and, but they, they don't know how to calibrate themselves. One of the things that's so funny about all of that is that, and I think this has like been found to be true more broadly, the older people I know in general weren't as scared of COVID as like the under 30 people, which mm -hmm. was even, yeah. More, it's probably just an example of the same thing. It's like, you're actually at risk. Like you, this can take you out. Right. And they're more fine with that. Maybe they're just out of wisdom, but it does feel like it's another example of this, well, they grew up in the old world. Yeah. Where risk was a thing that you understood. Yeah, and they weren't narcissists, you know. Kids, everyone's a narcissist now. So it's like, what about me? You know, they think it's gonna affect them. And they're also, understood that people were allowed to make their own decisions. Like it wasn't incumbent upon them to tell someone to put a mask on, on a hiking trail that's not their business. You know what I mean? Your average 23 year old does feel like they're anointed to do that, you know? So it's kind of a narcissism mixed with a, a grandiosity, like I went here and I learned this and now, you know, you gotta listen to me and it's all kind of a, a mess. Where do you think this starts? Because it didn't start with the cell phones and the digital stuff, really. It started, it, did, it feels like it started earlier, but what do you think? What's the root of the narcissism? Is it I, everybody gets a trophy? Is that the beginning? But where did that start? Like that was you weird know, too. I, I think that that's a kind of a misnomer. Like, it is an interesting thing that the participation trophy, I think angry old dads get it wrong when they go like, every kid gets a participation. Like I played Pop Warner football starting in the early seventies and everyone got a participation trophy. And so 
I mean, I'll, I'll circle back to an answer, but what I'm saying is, is I think we just get, we mislabel it when we go participation trophy, everybody gets it. Yeah, <laughs> it's called a participation trophy and you get it because you showed up and you attended the practices and you played, or maybe you didn't play in the games, maybe you're second string or whatever. But at the end, they'd have the banquet and they'd give the participation trophy to everyone. But it, it didn't mean anything, you know, because everyone got one, you know. And then they would give out, you know, best defensive player, best offensive player, best defensive lineman, the best, you know, break it down into categories. And now you were trying to get one of those trophies. And then the most valuable player was obviously the, the, the cream, the creme de la creme. So that's what you wanted. So what would end up happening is I would get a participation trophy and then I might get a couple other trophies for like best defensive player or something like that. And the, the participation trophies would just kind of eh, go over there and then you'd take the best defensive player and set it up where it could be seen. You know, so, you know, people are dumb. There's a lot of that. I mean, let's never <laughs> underestimate that. But I mean, it's like the self-esteem movement. Yeah. We decided this was really super important. It was basically like the food pyramid. Some idiot decided you needed 14 servings of grain every day and, you know, one <laughs> serving of protein or something. And they, they got it all wrong. They got it 100% wrong. But it's like somebody put together a food pyramid Everyone signed off on it. We went, yeah, this is how you need to eat. And then everyone got fat. But they did it with the self-esteem movement. They did this thing where it's like, it's a kind of reverse engineering, which is like, you know, some of these kids, they have, they don't have good self-esteem. And the way you get self-esteem is, is through accomplishment. It's not bestowed upon you by someone telling you you're the best. You have to go out to do something. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we or even just, if you're not the best, you're just you. And you should just yeah, feel you great just about be that, you. right? Yes, you should just. And I literally would like sit around and watch these cartoons like Wow Wow Wubsy with my kids and stuff. And they had this whole, you are the coolest and everyone's gonna know and you don't have to try. And, and it's like, <laughs> what kind of horrible message is you don't have to do anything and you don't have to try and everyone will know you're the coolest. So we decided to fix whatever problems we we're having with the self-esteem movement and we got a bunch of self-entitled, high self-esteem, lazy losers who, who eventually you become angry be because you have to be disgruntled because how long could you have, you, you're, you're fed a steady diet of you're the best and don't let anyone ever tell you and you're special and you're everything. Well, how many years of failure can you, can you, <laughs> endure before you start just looking around and getting get like kind of angry at the world. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, like I'd be pissed off too if everyone told me I was the best. Why am I work, working at Starbucks with a master's degree if I'm the best? Right, and, and it never worked, you know? And so I think you're seeing a lot of like resentment and, and then there becomes this sort of like Elon Musk, he's rich and he's white, you know? And it's like this weird envy and resentment and stuff. Like when did someone being successful or the color of their skin have anything to do with you or create your circumstances in any way, shape or form. You know, it's all externalizing. So I, the self-esteem movement, which does predate the phone and the digital world, and it was probably hit pretty hard. I think some idiot politician 
in uh, probably out here in Los Angeles, as I re recall, in somehow the mid 80s or something was like these kids in the inner city are failing because they don't have enough self-esteem and I'm going to tell them. And, and it just became this thing like the food pyramid where we went like, yeah, you need seven servings of whole grain every day. And it's like, no, you don't. You'll get fat. Yeah, no, look, check the pyramid, like check the self-esteem pyramid. You need yeah. seven doses of self-esteem. I don't care if you accomplished anything. You need to feel good about you because you, and it's like, I don't know who signed off on this. It was a horrible idea 30 years ago. It's a horrible idea today, but, but it's pretty ubiquitous. Like I remember interviewing the woman for my podcast and her name just escapes me right now. And I liked her quite a bit and she was the mom of the doc that I think was on Netflix where some shyster guy was hacking into everyone's computers and putting up pictures of the girls topless or having revenge sex or whatever it is. He's like the worst scumbag in the world, right? Yeah. And, and you know, at some point she like looked at me and she goes, this guy had really low self-esteem. And I said, no, no. <laughs> I have low self-esteem. I would never do this in a, I would never do this in a million. He has high self-esteem. That's why like most killers, most murders, they have high self-esteem because you need a lot of self-esteem to take someone's life. She's doing the food pyramid. You know what I mean? Yeah, like we, yeah. every idiot. Whatever the problem is, it like, starts oh, at this Oh, that case. guy, yeah. The, the, yeah, the reason he kicked your head into the curb and took your mountain bike is because he has low self-esteem. And it's like, I'd say that's the act of a high self-esteem individual. And they're like, if we could just give him more self-esteem, give him self-esteem, and it's like, no, that's not the answer. That brings me to something that I'm really curious how you think about, and that is bullying. A lot of the things that happen with our kids, I feel like they're, they are kind of smart enough to see when they're sort of bull and they'll make fun of it. So I know when my son's friend's school had this slogan, bully back down, and they would have a, the, the meetings and they'd say, if somebody's bullying you, you tell them bully back down. And immediately bully back down became something everyone made fun of. Sure. Because it's a goofy, cringy phrase. What is the best thing and the worst thing about bullying? The best thing is you might want to learn karate. <laughs> That's the best. Well, the best part of bullying is like, if you listen to Michael Strahan talk, he was a fat kid and he was called a fat kid. And at some point, I think on some army base in Germany where he was raised or something, he just, he got tired of everyone calling him the fat kid. So yeah. he, he started lifting weights and he stopped eating, you know, sugary snacks and he transformed himself into like a world-class athlete because he was being bullied. It's called fat. He said, I'll show you, you know, so that's, yeah. the, that's the best part in karate. You know what I mean? <laughs> the best part of bullying is most people, whether it's Michael Strahan or Madonna had somebody making fun of them or telling them they couldn't do it or saying they weren't good enough or whatever. And they said, I'll show you. And they went to work, you know? The bad part is I'm gonna eat fentanyl and climb into a hole, you know, because I'm being bullied, you know? I don't think bullying is inherently bad. I think it's kind of what you do with it, you know? Like there's a kind of 
process in response to bullying that can be a positive response. And then there's a very negative response to bullying. As they say, success is the best revenge. So one could go, I'll, I will show you people, I will move on and have a successful life and you'll be sad, you, you know, you bullied me. But, you know, there's nobody in my school that was going to out bully my friend Ray or my friend Chris. And my friend Ray and my friend Chris were the ones who were bullying me. So there would have been nobody else that could have done a better job of bullying. <laughs> uh, but I never really looked at it as bullying. It was just, we're just abusing each other. It's a really hard, I mean, I I'm sort of thankful now my son is 17. He's on the other side of the bullying thing, but in a lot of ways, but it's like, I, I just remember I sort of bullied my, I kind of bullied him a little bit. Like, I, you know, he's an only child and I've always like kind of taunted him and poked and prodded at him a little bit, like. Your son. Yeah, just yeah, because. I, I've done, I've done, I, I've done some of that with my son too. I'm not even sure why actually. It wasn't like a conscious, I'm gonna toughen you up necessarily, but it kind of was. Um, what do you think's underneath that? Cause I think men and dads sort of do this naturally and it's not some strategy. It's just like, you wanna do it, you wanna poke, you want a rough house. It's like a, yeah, it's some, I, it's a thing that's yeah. like this drive. No, it's, it's a kind of a bust chops kind of thing. You know, my son does it right back to me all day, every day. It's, it's a little instinctive. I, I, I don't know. It's like, why do young big horn sheep, you know, Bang, you know, smash their, right. I don't know, like horns into one another. It's like, I don't know, it's kind of what we do, you know? I, I don't know that we need to- Valorize it or- <laughs> I, I, I don't know that we need to get that granular with everything, like why, why, why? It's like, I don't know, guys kind of bust chops, women don't do it as much. For them, it's you know, more psychological. For guys, it's more physical. Guys do a little more sort of put down you know, humor. My son and his friends, they like roast jokes and stuff like that. Yeah. Like we, that's all time and memoriam kind of stuff. And, and it, it just kind of is, you know? And, yeah. and I don't, I've always pushed back on that. You know, when people go, well, the girls play with the dollies and the boys play with the guns, but if you gave the little boy a dolly and the little girl a gun, it's like, oh, shut up. It's just- He's gonna pull the leg off the, the doll, girls, turn it into yeah, a gun. Yeah, gun, right, <laughs> smack someone over the head with it, you know, and then and they go, how come men are the ones who build the bridges and the women are the school teachers? Like, I don't know, because it is. Like, I'm a, that's enough for me. I don't, I don't need to socially deconstruct every facet of our society. And you can tell me about some tribe in New Guinea where the guys are all gay and the women do the hunting or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But that's not what we do. So I feel like a lot of what we're just talking about feeds right into this cancel culture ethos, and especially when it comes to men. What's your relationship with that? I mean, from like, are you, do you have you found, found yourself to be immune to cancel culture? I mean, you talk a lot about your comedian. You know, how have you navigated these past couple of years? You're still standing. How do you um, do it? <laughs> It would be hard to say that I was not, you know, affected career-wise to some degree by whatever the, whichever way the winds are blowing, you know, currently and previously to now. So, 
you can't really document it because who knows? Like, well, maybe they wanted you to do this part in this show, but the phone never rang. Maybe that was because yeah. of this. And But it's not really documentable, you know? I you just can't definitively say this is why this and that is why that, because it's kind of invisible. Hollywood is kind of a business where we don't really need anybody. There's always somebody else who can do whatever. James Woods is a great actor. He's been in a million movies. And then at some point, he got pretty conservative and he started sounding off about it. Now James Woods doesn't work, you know? So James Woods is a fine actor, but we don't need him. You know what I mean? That, that's just kind of how Hollywood works. Hollywood works like, like you're throwing a party and you're inviting all your friends. And then you're like, do we need Craig? And it's like, well, I, I used to like Craig. Yeah, but do we need him for this party? Like, can we have a party without him? And you go, no, we'll have, bring uh, our new friend Vince. He can come instead. And you go, yeah, okay. And they just kind of swap him out. And before you know it, <laughs> Craig's not coming to the party, you know? And th that's, that's kind of how Hollywood works. And they definitely are for cancellation and they're for essentially McCarthyism, even though they complain about McCarthyism constantly. They, they're the biggest practitioners of McCarthyism in real time, uh, which they would probably resent, but it just happens to be accurate. And so for me, I have opinions and, and I've always shared those opinions and um, I'm pretty accurate um, in terms of my prognosticating and here's where we're going and here's what's happening or here's what I believe or this is stupid or I'm not going along with that. And that was fine for a, a long period of time and then things started shifting and they started kind of demanding allegiance and compliance, you know, like now here's what we're talking about and here's what we know. And I was like, I, I disagree with that and I don't believe it to be true and I believe what I'm saying is true. And uh, they started going, well, these, these are, this is kind of the new world order if you wanna come get invited to the parties and get the jobs and stuff like that. And I just went, well, I can't really go against whatever it is I know to be true. I mean, it's like I interviewed Gavin Newsom on my podcast some years ago, and he was telling me that, you know, the homeless issue was the biggest issue ever for him. That was a big, he was like the number one homeless issue guy. That's about nine years ago now. Yeah, and worked out great so it far. It worked out great. And, <laughs> and I told him, uh, well, the biggest problem with homelessness, I said, it's, uh, you know, junkies and people mental situations. It's your mental problems or people that are on drugs or, or both. And then he proceeded to explain to me the real picture of homelessness. And I'll quote him here was a mother of three whose husband left, who had a full-time job, but she was only getting paid minimum wage. And then I then told him that is not the picture of homelessness. The picture of homelessness is junkies who are out of their mind. That's that's all that's all we got. Now he never came back on the show. But the, but the, the point is this, as, as, a, as an example. I could have agreed with him, except for right. I, I knew he was 100% wrong. And I could have worked out a situation where me and Gavin Newsom became pretty good friends by me telling him something that I knew was patently false. But then why be a comedian? And who are you? And then what do you stand for? And I don't even know what you stand for. It's like, 
I said a bunch of stuff around COVID. It got very, a lot of people very angry. It became You true. and Drew, for sure. Yeah, me and Dr. Drew, for sure. Now, got us pushed further out from whatever the Hollywood nucleus was. Okay, I could, you know, I, I wrote a tweet over two years ago and it said, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase, but basically COVID kills old people and it kills sick people and the rest of you p***s got played. I sent that tweet out, got a lot of people real, super angry, really <laughs> angry and like Newsweek and, and stuff like that. And Judd Apatow, who's a friend and is a really good dude, he called me and he said, you gotta take that tweet down because people are pissed. <laughs> and I was like, can't do it. It's, it's up today. It's been up for two years, whatever, however many months. I never touch it. I never took it down. I would never take it down. I would say I'm wrong if I was wrong about it, but th that's what happened. Every 22 year old dude who doesn't have a pre-existing condition got played. Right. So that's my opinion. I, I think my son was in school in the fall of 2020. So, uh, but I'm in Texas, <laughs> right? So I'm in LA and they closed every school yeah, and yeah. it hurt the kids. And I said it would hurt the kids. And then the LA Unified School District started clapping at me, you know, and I was like, you guys are idiots. You're hurting kids. You're cowards. Go back to work. Stop being a coward. Either lying or you're cowards or whatever. Go get Get to work. The guys at the Trader Joe's are working. Go to school, you know, go teach your kids. And they started coming after me. And, and I was like, look, A, what I'm saying is accurate. And then B, you're hurting kids. And then C, everyone is telling me to shut up. They want to know what was wrong with me. I was like, listen, that, that's just how I am. And then yeah. people are like, don't talk about this and don't talk about that. And I'm like, I'll talk about anything I want as long as it's accurate, you know, I, I don't want to dispense false information, but just because you think it's false doesn't mean it's false. And then also I vetted all this. Now, if it takes you two years to come around on who's dying from COVID, that's on you. I, I would do a lot of interviews and people are like, we didn't know anything back then. We didn't, because I would always make fun of everyone. Like, yeah. you shut the beaches, you shut the schools, you, you shut the playgrounds. We didn't know. I said two things. How come I knew? Number one. Number two, if you didn't know, how about you shut the fuck up? <laughs> if you don't know, there's stuff I don't know about, I don't talk about. So then it's a good point. Know, don't make policy if you don't, if you don't know. So, you know, I got a lot of crap and like kind of pushed further out from wherever wherever that was but although you're saying really like you're pushing further out from say hollywood or entertainment but i do feel like this has gone way beyond that right it's like the people coming at you on twitter they're all over the place and the stuff that's happening when you went around on college campuses with no safe spaces that's like s students from all walks of life more or less that are getting triggered by you being yourself I think there's something really interesting about the fa the role of comedians in this in this moment we're in, right? You're the last hope and the and like the canary in the coal mine for where the society heads, I feel like. How do you think about that? Cuz it's weird. It's like you're like I'm just a guy. I don't don't take me seriously necessarily. But well, I I believe everything I say and I believe everything I joke about. 
too. So, you know, when, when comedians go, oh, that was just a joke, they meant it. They mean it. They always mean it. You should always be offended or not offended, but don't let them go, I was just making a joke. <laughs> they meant they meant it. You know? So the John Stewart shtick uh, on Daily Show, like I'm just a I'm a court jester. That was that's all sort of a head fake. Whether it's him or Dave Chappelle or or me or whomever, um, we mean it. You know, I'm not talking about you know Larry the Cable Guy, but but most comedians, you'll know what they're they're thinking by what they're saying, and they they kind of mean it. And the guys on the right think how they think, the guys on the left think how they think. And, you know, the thing about comedians is the reason the the left kind of goes berserk about like Dave Chappelle is because the left has their kind of tastemakers, you know, they have their Obamas and LeBron James and whoever the tastemakers are. And they get to kind of, they get to kind of set the tone for society, you know? Yeah. And so like when a guy like Dave Chappelle starts saying stuff that's not in lockstep with their cultural movement, they they go they go crazy, right? Yeah. Like that's why they go crazy on Chappelle. It's not really him making a trans joke. It's like, hey buddy, you're one of us. We we're on the, you know, you tell me the nuanced differences between what LeBron James thinks and Oprah thinks and Bill Gates thinks. I mean, climate, there's one of them that they have, they're, they're, they're on lockstep. Like how would they possibly be lockstep on every facet of COVID? Something we knew nothing, of, a novel virus that nobody knew anything. How'd you guys yeah. all get on the same page? How did all of Hollywood get on the same page and uh, about an answer of we didn't know anything at the time. Well, how'd you go? How, how'd everyone get on the same page? Well, they don't want to be penalized. And so, yeah, when there's a guy, this really embarrassing in retrospect video, which is kind of funny, funnily executed with Paul Rudd. It's like I'm I'm a certified young person, and my bro Andrew Cuomo's here to tell you about how you need to wear a mask. Right. And you watch it now, and it's it's just it's, it's all just, cringeworthy, <laughs> and it's, it's ten minutes awful. old. I know, and I, I always retweet that stuff. <laughs> Everyone says to me, leave these people alone. And I go, are you kidding? No way. This must be documented and they must be served up their crow. They have to. And so comedians are people that need to be kind of controlled because they're out making the narratives and pushing things. And like, and like you could remember, I remember when like Jon Stewart went on Stephen Colbert's show and he like went, well, I think the, the virus came from the lab. Like, you see, Colbert's face was like, John, no, that's not our... Yeah, he, he said he, he said something like, you weren't you, uh, what are you, senator or something? I forget, some Republican right, he was senator. Like, but really what he was saying is, is you got to read the playbook. We got a script here. You just went off script. And it's dangerous for them, for people to go off script. And comedians traditionally would go off script. They, they do it less and less now because... They'd like to remain <laughs> under the tent of, of Hollywood. But some of the ones that have enough FU money, you know, Chappelle or Joe Rogan or whatever, those guys, those are the guys who don't care. I feel like comedy exists on the opposite side or as an antidote to fear in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And it seems like fear is the 
tool in the toolbox that is constantly getting used, whether it's like trying to make our kids scared out of their minds that they're going to be extinct in 12 years because of climate change, which is all kind of baloney. Or, yeah, COVID was the ultimate, like, oh, we can re- this the fear button's so easy to hit, I don't even have to have my eyes open to push it. Yeah, I was calling it crate training. I was like, <laughs> uh, but I, I really did mean it. You know, people go, oh, what are you talking about? But I end up being right on everything all the time. And I've been saying it for 20 plus years now. So I'm, I'm sticking with what I think. It struck me that this never was an issue for kids. COVID wasn't. Statistically, it's just not a thing. So why the emphasis on the kids? Well, in order to scare the moms, you got to get the kids, and then the moms will kind of control what's going on inside the house. So you scare the moms by using the kids to scare the moms, and then you have sort of compliance. But I also said, I just labeled it crate training, which is you can't crate train a middle-aged dog. But the kids, you can crate train them. You get them young, like a, like a puppy. You yeah. gotta get that puppy yeah. into that crate. Break and, them, break them. You em. can break them and you can train them. You can't do it with middle-aged, full-grown dogs, you know what I mean? And also, the thing that's I, was funny about the crate is the crate is an illusion of safety, but it's not safety. If the house catches on fire, the dog will go into the crate and like feel like it's safe, but it's just in a house that's on fire. <laughs> crate training is an incredibly good metaphor. <laughs> um, I really meant it. And I still mean it. How? Because we're, we, we're going to need these kids for other things. I mean, COVID will come and go, but there's going to be a lot of asks, and we need compliant citizens. You know? So are you a pessimist uh, or an optimist? I, I You know, um, my feeling is I'm not really here to shape youth anymore. I'm here to tell you what I know and how it works. I'm, I'm just the personal trainer that goes diet and exercise, and you want to tell me about some Weight Watchers fudge-based something, and I'm just going, diet and exercise. That's what I'm telling you. And then you go, well, I got a new workout from a Barker lounger, you know, and I'm just like, all right, well, I'll go on record. I said diet and exercise. That's how you lose weight. And, and now, go off and do what you want, but I shall state it. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of the way I felt about COVID. I just went, here's what's happening. Here's my opinion. Here's how it goes. And you can call me an asshole or you can disagree or you can do whatever it is, but I am then going to just sort of be over here living my life. <laughs> and if you'd like to join me, great. And if not, that'll be your choice. How do you think about, you know, you talked a little bit about the country, like about what it means to be an American. Like, how do you think about where the country heads? There's a lot of reasons to be worried. Everything we've talked about is reasons to be worried. If, our, if we've got a whole generation that's crate trained, what comes next from there as far as who's gonna use the trained puppies for what is scary. Are you scared? Do you think there's a path? Can enough comedians <laughs> you know, help these kids see the matrix and get out of the cage? What do you think? I think it's going to be uh, another phrase that I've sort of coined, which is like safe spaces and octagons. And we're no longer going to live in the middle where we everyone used to live. People are going to become more scared and go deeper into a safe space. 
and others are going to long more for freedom and combat and excitement and danger. You know, they're going to go toward the octagon. So California sort of become a safe space and it will continue to go down that road and like Florida will become an octagon. And yeah. so certainly Texas is in Texas. So people who want freedom and want to drive a truck and don't want to be forced into an electric car or 2035 or whatever the mandates or whatever they're talking about, they'll just start going. They'll start congregating in those places. In the octagons. <laughs> yeah, in, toward the octagon. But for a lot of people that might not be where they want to go, you know, but but I don't want to live in the safe space, so I would like to go to the octagon. And I think one thing I've noticed in California right now is half the people are driving an electric car, or a Prius, or a Volt, or Bolt, or whatever, mm. Leaf, whatever, Tesla. So. They started like kind of pushing people like, hey, get incentives and do your part and, you know, help the ecology, which we used to call it and help the environment, blah, blah, blah. Help the electric get in California. Right. <laughs> so we started trying to nudge people toward electric vehicles and there's lots of ordinances and, and things like that. But you look around, I see more Dodge trucks with big Hemis in them and more Ford Raptors. You know, I'll put it to you this way. Ford does a super trophy truck that's street legal. It's called a Raptor. Yep, yep. Uh, it's like over 100K or something, isn't it? It's a Yeah, it's, it's a big gas-guzzling yeah. thing. Dodge came out with a competitor to the Raptor, which is like the Velocir... What's uh, the Velocir... The Raptor and the other one's like the T-Rex or whatever. Like, <laughs> these are cartoon vehicles that, yeah. that nobody needs with, you know, 36-inch tires and 12 inches of suspension travel and, a, you know, 700-horsepower blown VA, you know, I was like, nobody needs this. I'll bet you there are more Raptors and Dodge pickup trucks in California than any other state in the union. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I mean, I, I'm in Texas, so I see a lot of them. You see and, a lot of And I drive trucks. a V8. I drive a, a Land Cruiser, an old, an old, a used Land Cruiser. So. Texas is a good, a good example, but I still see these massive trucks everywhere. And you'll never see more electric vehicles and big trucks sort of living right next to each other, which is essentially the safe space in the octagon. So you try to tell people, get an electric car, and they go, I'm getting the Ford Raptor. Now, <laughs> I, there was a time when everyone just drove a Honda Accord or a Camry. That's all there was. You just drive around California, yeah. got a Camry and a Cord, maybe got a BMW 5 Series. Now it's all mega trucks and Teslas, which is basically saying this is how humans work. Yeah, you try to force them into an electric car, and a large percentage will get an electric car, but there'll be another percentage who's getting the Dodge with the Hemi in it, and that's what Florida and California are going to be. Just People are just going to go separate it. I ask this of every one of our guests uh, because we're called Dad Saves America because I think men and, and dads have, have a role to play in maybe either preparing our kids for the octagon or being people who can maybe pull us back to the center, but definitely not be in the safe space. You've sort of said this already, but how do you, how do you think about your role in the American story, like as an American? I think you're supposed to work real hard and... I think you're kind of supposed to be an example. I'm I'm much more interested in being an example to my kids than I am in telling them do this or do that. You know, I want to just kind of live a life that is kind of about 
dignity or hard work or in character, you know? And I don't do much like trying to graft on wisdom to my kids. I do, but I do do a lot of, I'm going to work and I have to work and I have to take care of things and I have to provide for you guys and stuff like that. I kind of believe there's just way too much talk and way too much talk about feelings and, you know, in my heart, I know, and all this nonsense we always talk about. When you talk to people who are older, and they talk about their fathers. You know, they talk about their mom and they'll go like, oh, she was really nice and she was loving and she loved us. Or, you know, hopefully you'll get some story about good lasagna or something. <laughs> and I like, with the dads, you get a lot of like, my dad worked really hard. You know, he was a hard worker. You know, the, the ones that are proud of him. And they forgive like a lot. Like my dad missed a lot of games and missed the, this, he traveled a lot, you know, but he was a hard worker, you know what I mean? And like, if you said to him, like, well, weren't you kind of pissed off at your dad that he wasn't there for the little league games? Like, no, my dad worked hard. He had to provide, like, like dads are kind of more mythology in the sense versus like hands-on day in and day out. Like nobody goes, my dad was my best friend. He called me sport. You know, I loved him. It was, it's more about like, my dad didn't take any crap from anybody, you know, mixed with my dad worked really hard. And, you know, like there's like a lot of that. So I think dads would be better suited to like go, what are my kids seeing? What am I showing them? What are they going to say when they're 45 and you're talking about, oh, my old man, you know, whatever, fill in, fill in the blank. Because they don't really go... My dad was nice. They, they never tell those stories. They just talk about him being an ex-Marine. He was kind of a badass or whatever. And they'll always go like, he was really hard on me, but, but I needed it. Like, he loved me. You, you know, like they do a lot of that. So, you know, I think approach being a dad for a little more from the example side and a little less from the, let me just like endlessly explain to you stuff that I'm never gonna do. Be a man of action. Yeah. Adam, thanks for being on Dad Saves America. Yeah, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dad Saves America podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. It also really helps us out when you leave us a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts. For more content like this, including video versions of these conversations, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica. <laughs>